Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tuesday morning, the 5th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. On Tuesday, the government will announce Budget 24. Yesterday, the main opposition party, Sinn Féin, published its alternative budget, outlining the options it believes government should be considering. Sinn Féin is proposing a 6.8 billion euro package with a particular emphasis on housing, health, the cost of living and climate change. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty joins us now. A very good morning to you, Pierce Doherty. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, you're talking about a substantial spend here, close to €7 billion. Euro. Uh, you're throwing caution to the wind to some extent, are you not, in that you're ignoring the government's 5% spending rule. Uh, some might even say it's reckless to be looking at amounts on this scale, given the advice from the ESRI yesterday that we're going to see a contraction in the economy, possibly a return to a recession? Well, first of all, you mentioned the government's uh, 5% spend rule. That, that's Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Spend rule has never been supported by their actors or indeed ourselves. And indeed, they haven't supported it in the last number of years because they've never met that target. And this year, they plan a budget that will exceed the 5%. And they're very upfront in relation to that. So, let, you know, let's not talk about rules that they've never met. And that's 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 political party rules. We're we're framing this budget, Michael, on the basis of what is needed in terms of the Irish economy. What is needed to address the crisis that we have in housing and health. What is needed to make sure that we have the proper investment and capacity in health. And what is needed to support workers and families now in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So we have put forward a package. Uh, you talk about some of our opponents may say it's reckless or whatever. I don't think some of them are actually saying that. But just just if they were, our package will be delivered with an €8 billion surplus next year. Our package will be delivered, making sure that no core current expenditure is funded through what would be volatile corporation tax receipts. But crucially, the thing is the most important thing about our package is it delivers the 21,000 public homes that we need to help deal with the crisis that has been created by 12 years of Fine Gael in office. It provides the support for renters by putting a month's rent back into their pockets and freezing rent increases for the next three years. It provides mortgage interest relief for the 40% of homeowners who have seen their uh, uh, mortgage interest go up by €3,000 uh, last year. But that mortgage interest relief will be uh, available to everybody who've seen an increase in their interest rates. So there are supports there for people, for households, but there's also supports there for people who are struggling in the here and now. So reduced costs for petrol and diesel. Not going ahead with a reckless plan by government to put up petrol and diesel on two occasions this month. And also then other supports in terms of reducing energy costs for households. 
Okay. Uh, the goalpost keeps changing, though, don't they? Uh, we were expecting a surplus of 10 billion. That's now 8 billion. Uh, and then we have what is unknown spending in the Department of Health. Uh, as you say in your own document earlier this year, it was believed that the overspend would be four to 500 million euro. Uh, it's now at 1.4 billion euro. By the end of the year, it could be a, a lot more. The Business Post uh, reporting over the weekend that it could be as much as 2 billion euro. Yeah, so two two things. First of all, the government's plans are having a surplus of €10 billion, euro, but the government plans to leave to make housing worse this year than it was last year. Now, they'll, they'll deny that, but the fact is, look at what's happened over the last number of years. Look at what's happened since government have took office. Has housing become a worse problem? Of course it has. House prices are continued to rise. Rents are now at record levels. And the, skirt, the, the scandal, the absolute scandal that we have nearly 13,000 people in emergency accommodation, nearly 4,000 children waking up this morning without a place to call a home, is absolutely appalling when we talk about figures of 10 billion euro of surplus that we're recording this year and next year. It's just absolutely crazy. And that's probably the disjoint that there is between economic activity that is that that workers are reaping in the in society and what is being delivered on the ground where your listeners can't expect to go to a hospital and actually be confident that they will have a bed after being admitted even after 24 hours and that's that's become the norm here now mm. in relation to the health overspend there is serious questions for the minister for health in relation to how the hse and he and the department are managing the health budget so we've recognized that there is an overspend that overspend will have to be dealt with this year through um, uh, supplementary estimates. I expect the government will do that also. But some of that overspend uh, will actually go into next year. And because some of it isn't really an overspend, Michael, some of it is an under-provision. It's, 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 it's resulting in the fact that government in previous years didn't provide the necessary supports to our hospitals. So there's two ways that you can spend money in hospitals and in our health service. And one way that we're doing it at the minute is we're paying a lot of expensive consultants and doctors and nurses. These are through agencies which you pay a premium, sometimes double the cost that you would have if you had them directly employed. And you're running at at an emergency state all the time, which means things are far more expensive. Or you can make the proper investment in capacity, adding on the additional beds, the additional wings onto our hospital. 1,800 beds is what we've identified uh, beginning next year, which will take three years in total to construct, but Mm. some of them will come online next year. That's about building the capacity that we need in the health service so that we don't have the issue where somebody's waiting in E&E, has been admitted to hospital, needs treatment, but is still sitting in a chair 24 hours later, indeed some cases 48 hours later. And it also provides a very clear signal to our doctors and our nurses and other health professionals that here is a place that you can stay. After being qualified, 6,000 people qualifying every single year, that the health service here is going to be fixed, that Sinn Féin are determined to fix mm. it, and we're determined to make the necessary investments. Okay. So you won't be working in a system that is chaotic uh, 24-7. Okay, but what, what, what I'm struggling to understand is uh, how the money will be put into the health service. You're proposing investing 1.3 billion euro in health. Uh, that could already be gone because of the overspend. Uh, and I mean, it's the same question uh, that could be put to the government in terms of what it proposes next Tuesday. Uh, but uh, we're talking uh, about a situation where we have all of these problems as it is, uh, and you're promising to solve, let's say, the idea that there'd be a thousand people on trolleys on one day uh, of the year, or 500 would be the norm. Uh, but if we're not increasing spending, how do we do that? Well, first of all, 
the reason the reason we have these problems is because we have a lack of capacity. The reason you have uh, hundreds of people in trolley not only as a daily scandal uh, across the health system is because we do not have the beds for them in in in, in either in the hospitals or in the step down facilities. Mm. And that's what Sinn Féin are saying. We're not going to look at the short term solutions. We're actually looking at how to fix this problem. So that means we need to build extra capacity onto our hospitals. And that is what we're planning to do. But there are things that we need to do in the here and now because there's other changes that can happen in okay, terms of health. But, but my question is, uh, do you do that with the 1.3 billion that you're suggesting or is that already spent or do you take that one? No. Do you take that no, 1.4 billion or 2 billion that's overspent in health from your housing proposals or somewhere else? No, I understand the question. No, the 1.3 billion euro that we're investing in health is in relation to additional spend. So additional capacity, it's about the extra capacity in our health services, it's about the extra nurses and doctors, and it's also about reducing the cost of health on patients by recosting the, the cost of medicine, 400,000 euro extra medical cards. On top of that, Michael, there is an extra 500 million euro going into the health budget just to keep us standing still. That's above what the government is putting in. The government's putting in a, a sum of money next year, uh, which they estimate is required to just stand still. We no, we recognise that that is actually not 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 enough because obviously we have an overspend this year. So there's a half a billion euro additional going into this just to stand still to keep things to keep the to keep the overrun um, uh, under control. And we expect the HSE to have a package of measures as they do this year to actually reduce that overrun uh, next year. So there is there is more than 1.3 billion euro going into he- additional going into health, and our proposals. Is 1.8 in total, yeah. but only 1.3 of that can be used for new measures, like reducing the cost of drugs, like extra medical cards, like extra beds in hospitals, extra doctors, consultants, and, and other areas. Okay, you've uh, promised that people would be allowed to retire on a pension at 65. Obviously, there's a, a cost to that. Is that why your proposed increase in pensions is as small as it is? You're saying 10 euro or 15 euro for people living uh, alone. Some would say that's misly, that the minimum, St. Vincent de Paul and others, for example, are saying the minimum necessary this year is 25 euro. Well, first of all, we recognise that there is um, there, that, that there was uh, an underfunding in relation to pensions last year. There is a one-off payment that we would be providing pensioners between now and the end of the year, including the, the double payment at, at Christmas. In terms of next year, we've framed our budget based on the inflation rates, which are moderate next year, where they'll be about 3.2%. So over a quarter of all pensioners will receive a 15 euro increase. All other pensioners will see, receive a 10 euro increase. But there's more benefits there for, for pensioners than just that. So many pensioners, for example, pay for prescription charges. On average, that costs 250 per week. So by abolishing prescription charges, and this is what I was talking about in terms of reducing the cost of drugs, that for many pensioners, that's another 250 that they're benefiting. For also pensioners, Many pensioners receive the, the fuel allowance and therefore an increase, a five euro increase in the fuel allowance is again equivalent to another 250 euro uh, per week for, for pensioners. So you have to look at our policies in the, in the round in relation to the added and additional benefits that are there for pensioners. It's not just simply a, a, 
a, a, a core weekly mm. payment that is increasing by 10 euro or 15 euro, but also then there's additional add-ons where pensioners could be anything in excess of 20 euro better off as a result of uh, our, of our proposals, depending on their circumstances. And you're not just spending money, of course. Uh, you'll be raising money uh, and you'll be eliminating tax relief on, what you say, are gold-plated pensions uh, and uh, you'll be extending uh, the bank levy, uh, which I think you're hoping to bring in 400 million euro on. Uh, but one of the more uh, surprising things about your budget proposals this year is that there isn't a wealth tax, something that Sinn Féin has been proposing for many years. Was that proposal wrong? No, it's not, and it's actually in our budget on page 47 where we're very clear that we support uh, the merits of a, of a wealth tax and we would want, if we were in government, we would ask the Commission on Wealth to design uh, a net wealth tax. Um, with a number of measures here, Michael, the Department of Finance either don't have the data or can't, can't cost measures, so there's a number of measures that we would do in terms of, like, those uh, vulture funds, we would, you know, tax them properly because they don't pay any tax on the rent that they charge uh, uh, their, 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 their tenants uh, and they don't pay any tax on the sale of their properties like any other businesses they should be paying tax. Um, but we, So we would get rid of those sweetheart deals, but they are not costed by the Department of Finance. So we, we include those in a, in a list of measures that we would in- introduce but aren't costed by the Department of Finance and we're not relying on the revenue that they would bring in. But if we were in government, we would get them costed and we would introduce them and wealth tax is one of those. And how we would do that is by establishing a wealth tax commission to look at the design and merits of a tax on net wealth. But you would reduce taxes on people who are relatively, if not very wealthy, uh, earning under €100,000 a year. Yeah, my, look, my pledge, and I make it very, very clear to the, to the public, is that, you know, if you are an individual that earns less than 100000 a year, we are going to cut your tax rates. Um, and that's what we're doing in this budget. We have argued for many, many years that we need to reduce the USC, particularly uh, on, on, on the lower ends. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to abolish one of the rates. We're going to slash the other rate in half. And we're going to increase the threshold by €3,000 for the third rate. Uh, and we would continue that over a programme of five years. So if you are in that category where you earn less individually than €100,000, then you will see our tax reduction. If you happen to earn more than €100,000, then what we say to you is that there will be reductions in the first €100,000 that you earn. But after on the portion above €100,000, you'll start to use lose tax credits. And when you hit €140,000, the portion above that, we're asking you to pay a 3% solidarity tax. Okay, a lot of money people would say uh, for uh, anyone earning uh, less than 50,000, anyone earning less than 30,000, would they be making games to the same extent? Yes, like our proposal, because like if you look at the government's proposal last year, their main proposal was in relation to increasing tax bans, which excluded uh, 80% of taxpayers according to revenue. So uh, by actually reducing the USC, you capture most workers, um, if not nearly all workers in, in, in that, uh, because people pay USC uh, at a very low rate of, of income. Uh, so that is our proposal. It seems that we've won that argument. We're hearing leaks from government that that's the, the approach that they may take this year. So there will be a benefit package there for workers. But more importantly, if that worker is a renter, then they're going to get a month's rent back into renter, into their pockets. And crucially, they're going to get a ban on rent increases. If that mortgage holder or if that uh, person is a mortgage holder, 
then they're going to get up to €1,500 in mortgage interest release. If they've got a child going to college, their fees are going to be reduced by €1,000. If they happen to have children in childcare, we're going to cut the cost of childcare next year by 55%. So there's a whole suite of measures to support families and workers in the middle of a cost of living crisis. As I said, while at the same time, building the capacity in the houses that we need and the and the and the additional beds that we need and investing for the future particularly in the area of climate change okay we have to leave it there our time's run out but thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program today that's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance Pierce Doherty Michael at lmfm.ie the Michael Reed show with Airgrid managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future needs well, there was a lot of excitement yesterday at the news that Turkey withdrew its bid for hosting the 2028 European Championships. That means that on Tuesday of next week, it is almost certain that UEFA will formally announce uh, that the championship will be held between a joint bid from the UK and Ireland. Let's speak to the Minister for Sport, Finnefall TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne. A very good morning to you. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Really wonderful news for the country. Well, look, it's, it's certainly looking like it, but I don't want to anticipate anything before next Tuesday. Look, the UEFA Executive Board has to meet to make the decision. In fact, the bid team, the joint bid team, has to go to Switzerland to make the bid and make the case. There's a lot of work that's gone on in the last couple of years around this, um, and that decision hopefully will be positive next Tuesday. And we are very excited about it. Of course, we're confident. Um, but I just want to respect the process as well uh, that's not fully concluded as you say yourself. All right. well the expectation is though that uh, because we're the only bidders, this joint bid, we're the only bidders uh, that uh, the tournament will be held here and in the UK uh, that will result in a cost of uh, between 65 and 93 million euro, will it? Look, we haven't publicised the cost yet because we're still in the bid process. And what I've said is, obviously, that, that information can be made available after the process is over, and the process isn't quite over yet. We'll do that. But any events like this that the Irish government hosts, the Ryder Cup, for example, if we wanted to host the, the Tour de France uh, and other events as well, there's an independent cost-benefit analysis done. And that's basically to show that the economic gain to the country, in this case, it would be at least three times uh, the cost of the country and I think that's very very important in okay. addition to that we want to make sure more people are participating in sport as a result of these major events as well and we're certainly looking at policies uh, around that over the next couple of years too OK uh, the Aviva Stadium obviously would uh, be the centre uh, of attention here south of the border it would host six games including a, a quarter final there is a question mark over Casement Park though in Belfast is there not the Taoiseach said yesterday that the Irish government might help with uh, the investment into Casement Park uh, to make it fit for standards Look, the, the, the position is that Casement Park is part of the bid, um, and if the bid is successful, it should be part of that. The British government, through the Secretary of State, have given a firm commitment that it will be done up in time, uh, so we'll have to rely on that. The Taoiseach has said what he said, um, but, but it's very early days in relation to our involvement there. It is, first and foremost, uh, I suppose, the responsibility of the British government, and one that they have accepted. I was talking to the CEO of the Football Association in Northern Ireland um, recently, uh, and they're very confident uh, of the British government commitment there, as are we, because it's part of the bid. 
uh, and we've had discussions as well with our, with our counterparts um, across the water too. Mm. I think it would be easier with, it, with an Northern Ireland executive in place. Yeah. Um, but that commitment is from is from Ten Downing Street. Well, we might hear news of a, a Northern Ireland executive uh, being put back in place over the weekend. But in the meantime, the Ulster Unionist Party has concerns that the work could be done in time, uh, and the DUP is concerned uh, about spending money on it at all, saying that uh, you need a, a reality check before putting a, a blank check aside for the work. Well, look, that's a, a matter for the British government, I think, that they're the ones that have made the commitment. But I think that there'll be huge... Well, is it, though, Minister? I mean, with respect, uh, I wonder if the British government uh, is being told uh, locally not to spend the money and the Taoiseach is saying that we're willing to invest in it. Uh, is it a bill that could land on our laps? Look, I, I'm not anticipating that. I mean, look, the, the, the position is that the British government have actually underwritten this. They want this to happen. I think people in Northern Ireland across the board want this to happen. And um, this is genuinely cross-community where the GAA stadium has been made available to the Football Association of Northern Ireland, which is not the team that nationalists generally support. Uh, and they're working together. And I think at the 30th anniversary, which will be in 2028, of the Good Friday Agreement, this is extremely positive and uh, that people are working together. It's actually what the Good Friday Agreement should be all about. And I've been on this station so many times in my previous role as Europe Minister where we're, you know, discussing difficulties in the relationship between Britain and Ireland and between the islands and among the peoples of the islands. And this is something positive that we've actually worked on really, really well. We're kind of under the radar for the last couple of years as well, just been very, very careful about the bid process. And now we see, I hope, next Tuesday the result of this. And I think it's all positive. And of course there'll be things to do. And undoubtedly I'll be on the show at some point and what's this problem or this issue. Of course there'll always be those issues Mm. uh, with hosting of major events. But I'm absolutely, absolutely convinced uh, that we will that we will be able to get through that and work through that because we have such a professional bid team. There's a real sense of cooperating and working together, and a real sense of the benefits and the spin-off uh, that come from this. I mean, fundamentally, this will be a great event for people to enjoy. Whether it's in Dublin, whether it's in Belfast, Manchester, London, uh, people will come to Dublin. They'll come to Belfast. There'll be knock-on effects of absolutely no doubt yeah. all along. Uh, the east coast between Dublin and Belfast and that will benefit all of our areas too but fundamentally people will enjoy it and hopefully more will participate in the sport as a result Uh, and the return for the investment should be great can you quantify that uh, in percentage terms I I know you don't want to talk about the cost but uh, it's reported that it was going to be 65 million over three times we we, we estimate it's over three times the cost so so if it is 93 million which is uh, allowing for inflation on top of the original estimate of 65 million we should see 300 million back into the economy I'd be happy to go into the figures once the bid process in due course once the bid process is over um, in in terms of what we do look the costs just to be to go go into it the costs are around security probably one of the biggest costs there'll be some costs around the city council in terms of what they would provide uh, to make the experience really really good some costs around public transport uh, and then some some other tourism marketing costs as well Um, but I think that it's something that will be worthwhile this is after all and let's not forget the third biggest sporting event in the world after the Olympics and the World Cup. Yep. It's a huge event mm. uh, and attracts huge audiences. It's a window in the country to the world uh, in a sporting context and I think that's something that's very, very welcome. You mentioned the Ryder Cup Minister. Uh, can I ask you about uh, the Senior Minister, Catherine Martin, uh, reported in the Irish Examiner yesterday to have gone to the Ryder Cup uh, with her husband, Green Party TD, Noel Duffy, and four top officials, uh, apparently on important government business. What did you make of that? 
Well, first of all, as I'm just to say, as I, as I read, and I only read what you read, her husband went on his own steam, so I think that's important to say as well. Um, Ireland is hosting the Ryder Cup uh, in a few years' time. We're the next host after, uh, the next European host. Um, it's a massive tourism uh, profile for the country. It's a huge uh, investment for the country as well, um, and there are huge benefits to it. And it's also not, you know, we want to move things around the country. This isn't happening in Dublin, it's happening in Limerick. Um, and she was, Minister Martin was over there with the Ryder Cup. There are other people from tourism, the, the tourism sector as well, promoting the country, uh, examining how this works, and trying to sort of make sure that we get this right. Okay, and but it's, raised, I- it's, done, and it's raised eyebrows, Minister, as you know, as a glorified junket. Well, I wouldn't accept that. I mean, the, the reality is we will be spending significant amounts of money uh, on the Ryder Cup over the next few years, particularly when it comes to 2028, uh, when, when, when we're hosting it. Uh, and that's, that's important work that has to be done. And there's, mm. huge, there's an, a huge amount of work going on at government level uh, already to make sure we get this right. And I think it's entirely appropriate that the Minister would visit the Ryder Cup, particularly with our officials who are actually working on it with the golf world and the Ryder Cup uh, system uh, to make sure that we get this right and we do a good job because we have we have a large role to play and there's a huge amount of work going on uh, already in relation to that and I've seen a huge coup for the country uh, when when the, the bid was announced which is a few years ago now uh, that, that, that we're going to host the Ryder Cup uh, in Adair yeah. uh, and I think it's very very welcome I think that sometimes ministers have to do this and she did this last weekend and I think that is very much within not just as Senior Minister for Sport but also Minister for Tourism as well, so, so okay. I have absolutely no difficulty with that. All right, can I just ask you another question uh, related to Drogheda United fans? Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you're off fay with uh, this minister, but there was an incident in Oriel Park uh, on Friday uh, where uh, Dundalk Metro official was struck by a pyrotechnic. Uh, as a result of that, Shamrock Rovers have said that they're going to ban Drogheda United fans from the next home game. Uh, do you believe that's appropriate? So I actually genuinely wasn't aware of that. I go to many Drawdy United home games. I wasn't at the match last Friday. Um, and, uh, I, I simply wasn't there, and I'll certainly look into that, but I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, but certainly what we've done, in, what I've done for my part uh, in the Department of Sport, is we brought in a new code of conduct uh, for all sports that I know that the, actually the FAI and GAA IRFU worked with me on to make sure there's a code of conduct of respect, uh, abuse of officials, assault. But the fundamental thing is if someone was assaulted, then that should be a matter of the Gardaí. Now, I don't know the, the particular circumstances of that particular incident, um, but fundamentally, if someone's assaulted or something like a pyrotechnic is thrown at someone, that's a matter for the Gardaí, and I think it should be dealt with by the Gardaí. Okay. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, the Minister for Sport, Thomas Byrne, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for me East. Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Well, as you probably heard yesterday, the Road Safety Authority met for its annual conference and one of the issues they were looking at is new European legislation, which is coming down the line, which will govern how e-scooters are used in this country. Let's speak to Blake Boland, who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. A very good morning to you, Blake, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, There can often be a a lot of frustration on the roads or on the footpaths, as the case may be. Uh, 
not just with e-scooters, but with bicycles and with pedestrians and so on. What do you make of what's being proposed in terms of e-scooters? I suppose the first thing to mention is that the maximum speed is going to be 20 kilometres an hour. Yeah, that's right. There's going to be a few different forms of how we, we legislate for this and, and how we, we try to, to control them or encourage them or whatever the case may be. But yeah, just to go back to your point there, you know, we're all trying to, to share this space of getting around. We're all busy people. We want to get there quickly. We don't want to be hanging around. And we're having to share that, whether we're a pedestrian, we're a cyclist, you know, a motorbike. And in the future, it looks like e-scooters as well. But it's a challenging time. You know, this is a, on the one hand, it's a very new and exciting technology. It's it's a new way of diversifying how we get around our towns and cities it's extremely energy efficient you can pick one up for 300 euros and and do thousands of kilometers on it you know and then on the other hand we are seeing i suppose some abuse of this new technology this Mm. nascent technology and and at the moment, you know, we've seen three deaths on the road yeah. this year yeah. by people that were on or passengers well, of those e-scooters. Yeah. That's completely S- some of our local listeners will be acutely aware of uh, one of those deaths, uh, at least. Uh, but uh, you're pretty vulnerable uh, on one of these e-scooters, and I think that's the point, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And mm. I was actually at that RSA conference of the mm. previous year, and, and, and it was mentioned about the profile of injuries that we're mm. seeing. And, and depending on, on, you know, whether you're on a motorbike or in a car, if you find yourself in an accident, the profile of those injuries can be quite different and they're, they're looking into that at the moment to see, mm. well, what type of injuries are people having on e-scooters? Yeah, and Vincent's Hospital uh, published some data yesterday on injuries that it's seen from e-scooters and I think uh, the view there is that you'd be far safer on a bicycle, that is if you're going to have a, an accident. Uh, so I think the objective here is to make using e-scooters safe for everybody else but also for the riders. That's right. I mean, whether you like them or whether yeah. you load them, they lo- it looks like they're coming down the line. So it's about, okay, accepting if they are going to come and the government makes that decision, we have to accept with it and move on with it. So at that point, then, how do we make these as safe as possible? How do we educate people to drive them? And do we have the right rules and legislation in place? And then the right enforcement for those laws mm. afterwards to make the roads a safer place in general? Because yeah. this has been a pretty bad year for, for road safety. Will it be enforceable uh, to keep people off the paths? Well, that's that's the thing. That's the challenge that we're going to see. What what are the rules going to be? Now, you mentioned already that they're going to have speed limits, so mm. we, we can touch on that later on, the power yeah. of the motors themselves yeah. and the mm. speeds that they can go at. But it's how do we use them at that, and that's a conversation that, that needs to be had at the highest levels and then also all the way down to people that are going to be using them. Mm. So if you operate a scooter, for example, in the same way that a responsible cyclist would yeah. operate his or her bike, then are we going to be able to cut down on those injuries mm. and prevent a lot of them? And, and that may well be the case. Yeah, well, what about the speed because the maximum speed is going to be 20 kilometers an hour and I, I take it your engine uh, if that's the right word for the scooter uh, will have to go uphill at 20 kilometers an hour it'll have the capacity to do that uh, yeah. so what does that mean coming downhill so if it's 20 or even 25 kilometers which which may well be, be the case then um it's it's yes you're right it comes down to the power of the motor so what these ones and and they're they're capped at 25 kilometers an hour so no matter which way you're going be it uphill or downhill the idea is that they're capped at 25 and they will actually put on the brakes. The motors themselves can, although it's technically wrong to say, but they can go into reverse and kind of slow you down then. Okay, right. So mm. the idea then is that we've got 
continuous power output of up to 250 watts. So that's a quarter of a kilowatt. Now, mm. the electric car that I drove up in here today has 80 kilowatts. This, these are going to be a quarter of one kilowatt. So they're right. not very mm. powerful at all. Mm. But the thing is, you, you can have a little bit more peak output. Mm. So if you're going up the hill and someone like myself with a bag on and maybe I've got some heavy rain gear, mm. I could be up to 100 kilos. So I'm going to need, you know, a little bit more power to get me up to the hill. So you yeah. can have a higher peak output. Mm. But then you don't need that. So we've got a continuous output as you just, you know, go okay. along down down by the river there or something like that here in Drogheda. Just keep that continuous okay. 25. Now, n- not particularly powerful, but very powerful if you hit me when I'm walking down the road. Uh, should there be uh, tax, insurance, all of the other regulations that go with motorised vehicles? Uh, should there be drink driving laws? I think they're going to insist uh, on lights front and back uh, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's a question about helmets. Yeah, well, most of them do have, have lights built into them already, and you can have different settings for those. You can have them on continuous or flashing and so on. So that'll come down the line, all right. But this is the conversation that's been had in the background. How do we classify these things? So, for example, if you're up on a scooter and you're pottering down the road at 25 kilometres an hour, there's a good chance that a lot of people will overtake you on a bicycle. They can mm. go a lot faster. So here's where we get into the question about, about speeds. Um, helmets, we're looking at, I mean, the obvious answer. We all know this if we're talking to our children going out on the road is you wear your helmet if you're going out on a bike so why will it not be any different if you're going to be on a scooter Mm. having said that we don't legally enforce it for bicycles so are we going to do that for scooters Mm. and that's a question that that's going to come up as well and then it's the same idea for for road tax and for uh, for insurance as well we don't demand that of a bicycle and if you've got a responsible we do for drink and driving though don't we so this is another thing yeah yeah. Mm. i mean if you're in command of a vehicle you know even Mm. if it is just an e-scooter you really have to have your faculties about you Mm. we all know if you have a few pints or a few glasses of wine Mm. and you get up on an e-scooter you're a danger to yourself and other people around you and i think any reasonable person would be against that okay Uh, and uh 16 years of age is that a, a good limit do you think so well, we're, we're waiting to see the research on yep. this and okay. see what the government say and see what the advice is. There's there's a lot of extremely intelligent and qualified people that are studying this in, in a lot of detail and that's kind of coming out now. You mentioned the RSA, or oh. sorry, the, the research there on the profile of injuries and we need to see a little bit more about that. So we, at the moment we don't ban bicycles you know, from your five-year-olds. Mm. Um, so the question is if we get them on the e-scooters earlier, smaller scooters mm. that aren't powered, do they learn how to do this and then adopt it? Are they trained first? And this is a big conversation, I think. It's just a little bit early for yeah. you know, to take a, a very, very official and, and possibly hard stance on, on mm. a new technology. Yeah, and possibly driving lessons or things like that, you know, to have road awareness because that's really, I, I, I would imagine it's really the idea of having age limits on it. Yeah, and in yeah. time it may well become part of the culture in the way that, you know, I might teach my four or five-year-old child how to cycle. I might teach them how to do it on a scooter because it's just so commonplace, you know, in the year yeah. 2035. So we're, yeah. we're waiting to see that. Yeah, that, that's if it's on the ground. It might be six feet above the ground at that Pretty stage. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, it's going to be a big weekend for the AA as well. Uh, you're holding your award ceremony in Crow Park this weekend. Oh, that's right. It's tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah tomorrow. Big, big day. We've put a lot of work into this. Um, we're, we're, we're looking forward to it now. So we've got 14 different categories all the way from small city cars through large crossovers, performance vehicles and three categories dedicated to EVs and then of course the, the overall winner. But we're really excited about it. We've got nine independent motoring journalists, um, some of the best in the country from the national newspapers, you know, the Business Post, Irish Times, Independent uh, and so on. So it, it's great to have such a, a knowledgeable jury there and they are completely independent. We ask them for their votes one, two and three in each of the 14 categories and they tell yeah. us which is best and we mm. pass that on to, to the Irish public because yeah. it's very difficult. You know, if you want to mm. go and you want to buy a new car, what's yeah. the best 
cost for me? Mm. What's the different type of drivetrain? Do I need a small crossover? What's the difference between that and a large family yeah. car? Mm. And now people can just go, right, there's 14 categories. Yeah, that's the category I need. Okay, the AA Awards say that these are the one, two, and three cars. Absolutely. And you're a big fan of electric vehicles. Uh, some of us are struggling to understand what you say when you say EVs. Uh, but for those of you who are so familiar with EVs and so on, you won't be too worried about uh, the restoration of excise tax. Uh, but it doesn't look like uh, petrol and diesel uh, car drivers should be too worried for the moment. Yeah, so it, it, it remains to be seen. And we know the budget is coming up in a few days' time. So that's going to tell a large tale. But we, we put out the anti-fuel price survey there about a week ago. So it's still relatively accurate. You know, and that's a 185 for both petrol and diesel. Now, if we get a little bit extra, let's say a couple of cents on the carbon tax, and then we got that final restoration of duties there that you just spoke about of 8 and 6 cents on petrol and diesel, that gets us up to the 193, 195 mark, dangerously close to 2 euros at that mm. stage. So there's serious pressure on the government now to, to not reintroduce that last tranche at the end of October and and we suspect that they won't but it remains to be seen because there's a lot of pressure on motorists out there in terms of how much they're paying and that's delivery drivers and, and trying to fuel national vehicles you know it's, mm. uh, it's it's very expensive now as we approach two euros Alright Blake good to see you thanks for coming into us and uh, thank you for joining us Blake Boland is Head of Communications with AA Ireland 086 1800 658 Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Yeah, some of uh, the comments coming to us about Euro 28, uh, somebody saying the football supporters better start saving for a hotel price or they'll be going up to Dublin and bringing a sleeping bag with them otherwise because of the cost of hotels, obviously. Uh, John Conlon in Ballymckenney wondering if uh, this legislation will be for all e-scooters. Uh, I believe uh, that is uh, the intention, but it's being finalised by the EU Commission, as I understand it at least. Uh, Deirdre says he's scooters should not be allowed on footpaths. Too easy to knock somebody down. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch asking, could we ask Thomas Byrne what they're going to do about price gouging in the run-up to Euro 28 with hotels and bars? Thank you indeed. Uh, who the hell does the Taoiseach think he is giving Irish people's tax money to the Brits, says Paddy uh, from Kells relating uh, to Casement Stadium. Thomas Byrne says his party are a Republican party, says Matthew Indrada but ha ha says Matthew he has a problem saying north of Ireland I'm not sure I understand that completely Pat Navid says Michael an elderly woman was knocked down in Dublin earlier in the year by an e-scooter a week later she died also individuals on e-scooters dash in and out with traffic they need proper regulation insurance is required for that matter thank you Pat indeed now let's turn our attention to breast cancer and indeed investing in breast cancer or more to the point B or C A gene testing Erin McGreal is a Fianna Fáil senator and on the line and this is an issue that you raised in Shannon Erin yesterday, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme maybe you'd start by explaining what B or C A gene is so, so, good morning Michael and yeah so the reason why I, I raised breast cancer and the B R C gene or the BRCA gene is because well, it's some, it's an area where I, I work quite a lot in, but also October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And, you know, the, I, I wanted to raise awareness for BRCA gene. Also, put more pressure on the HSE and the department to continue its improvements. 
So back to your question, Michael, in regarding to what is BRCA gene, and that is a, a breast cancer susceptibility gene. And it has really become, you know, a fantastic, you know, advancement in, in genetic science when we know what genes can cause um, what uh, one gene that can cause breast cancer. Mm. And identifying this gene can really help a person, you know, susceptibility um, or to determine a person's susceptibility to breast cancer or ov- ovarian cancer. And that will enable an early intervention and also potentially life-saving measures. Um, and so it is really, really important that people with family history, um, you know, speak to their GPs, speak to, speak to, to you know, the, the medical professions and see, you know, is that something that they want to do to go forward for that genetic testing to understand whether or not it is the BRCA gene that possibly could be causing the breast cancer within their family. Yeah. And it is not just a, an individual decision, Michael, as you can imagine. It is a whole family-wide decision. Because well, of I was course, just going to ask, uh, 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 what do you mean by uh, checking your family history? Does it skip generations or does it... Uh, if somebody in your family has had breast cancer uh, and they had the BRCA gene, uh, is it most likely that you would have it or should be tested for it? Well, absolutely. If, the, if someone in your family has had has the BRCA gene, they most definitely should also get tested. Genetics, you know, is is like any like any gene, Michael, any, any hereditary, um, whether it be you know like, like cystic fibrosis. If it's in your family, you have a not you have a chance of having it. Mm. So you might not have it just because you're, you know just because it's in your family. It doesn't mean it's on it's on one of the chromosomes. And I'm not a scientist. So I won't pretend yep. to be, mm-hmm. but it is absolutely the possibility to pass it on, on down and that is and that is a problem is but the good thing is that we do know about it and to knowledge is absolutely power in all healthcare um, and to be able to be proactive in relation to this care but be proactive and su- and get the support about that because it is a huge decision for someone to go in and if they are positive it's a fam it's, it is it's a family wide decision because yeah. Michael as we all know breast cancer causes men and women oh, okay. and apparently mm. I was just going to ask, uh, is this something that should be tested for men uh, as well? Because uh, if you ha- have this gene, uh, it's quite possible, if not quite likely, I gather, that you'll go on to develop breast cancer and then decisions would have to be made. And you see people taking very, very difficult decisions to have a, a mastectomy and so on. Absolutely, Michael. It can be very, very, it's a very huge, huge decision. And yes, and I think I'm not sure, I, I, I can't remember off off the top of my head, but one of it's either BRCA one or BRCA two that is more prevalent in for men that will have the breast cancer. Again, your me, your GP, your medical consultant, and that family genetic counsellor should be able to to be able to. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, signpost a family, signpost an individual to see what is best and whether it should be the men and women in your family getting tested for this BRCA gene. Um, again, what my, the main point of my, my commencement and my debate yesterday was around making sure that model of care for the hereditary cancers is, is implemented, that it's funded. It was launched in June this year, so it is quite new. We're, getting, we're catching up with the advancement in our science. We do have, you know, a, a, a thankfully now, um, a national strategy for genetic and, ge- and genomic medicine. This is also part of it. Mm. Um, the government has put more, put 2.7 million into the strategy, but also it is important to keep on highlighting that we need m- more resources. It's, it is labour intensive. It is cost intensive. Um, for if you go privately to get a BRCA gene testing, it can cost up to fourteen hundred euros, Michael. So, what my point was yesterday that people who have that cash shouldn't be the only ones that are able to be empowered to know about their their genetic makeup. We need to be able to know about all our population and support everybody who might have that cancer, that that breast cancer in their family to to walk to 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 get that genetic counselling as it's called um, and more genetic counsellors are being recruited mm. into the services there is huge amount of work being in but Michael as you all know we all ask for more particularly in the week before the budget I do want to see more funding put towards the, the, the hereditary model of care within hereditary cancer model of care um, because it's really really important because prevention um, is a lot cheaper in the long run than curing cancer, yeah. um, and this is a cancer that we can absolutely, um, absolutely cure. And, um, and this and is just one type of gene that leads to uh, cancer, breast cancer in this case. And there's many types of genes. And I, I take it that uh, your questions relate to all of the different genes and testing for them. Uh, what happens at, at the moment uh, if you go private? You say you pay up to fourteen hundred euro. Uh, if you don't go private if you try to get tested through the HSE is there a very long waiting time? You can be waiting up to a year. Again it is risk assessed by your by your the by the, the consultant. What they would say is we look at the prevalency of, of breast cancer in your family, you know, your age, all these things they will they will they will risk assess a person and then the like like everything. Um obviously Michael, if a person has symptoms or anything like that, they are top of the list. They're, you know, so so it's not that you must wait for the, wait mm. for it's it's it, people who are waiting for BRCA gene testing are asymptomatic. They, they don't have any symptoms. Um, but again, at the minute, it's risk assessed. I just want it opened up for more for more people. 
um, and that you don't have to wait more for more than you know up to a year. And also, Michael, there are in in some areas some are waiting for more than two years yeah. for the risk reducing procedures, and that is the mastectomy, um, and that is a huge decision. And you know, to to know your you possibly when you're perfectly well in years. a lot of cases. Absolutely. No signs of any illness. Uh, it's just preventative. Preventative. Yeah. The, it, 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 the, the research shows that by having a mastectomy can reduce developing cancer by 90, mm. 90 95%. Yeah. It is a huge figure. It's mm. very, very important. And the odds of and getting breast dead. cancer are very high if you have this gene. Uh, and, yes, absolutely. And if there's a, a diagnosis of cancer in the family uh, and uh, it's deemed to be genetic uh, well I take it then that everybody in the family has to be uh, everybody on that side of the family if you like uh, going back uh, as far as you, you can think really needs to be tested for the gene well, and again Michael it would it would be for I suppose the medical consultants to be um, you know casting the net mm. and advising people within the immediate family um, to get 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 tested and um, to make sure that the, the weather or find out whether they do have it or not. As I said, it is now based on a risk assessment, whether it's your parent or your aunt. You know, so it will be it will be it's all risk assessed at the minute. I would just like to see those waiting lists reduced. I want to see you know the it not has to be as risk assessed if you know what I mean. That that mo- it's opened up to more people. Um, I even I know I know women who have got tested, got positive, other women in their family, and around you know up to twenty people in their immediate family were positive for BRCA gene. Um, so um, we're of a very genetically close nation because of our island. Because we're an island, we are genetically linked quite a lot. It is important that we that we really really fund to a greater degree the genetic and genomic medicine in Ireland as a whole, right across from rare diseases to, to, to cancers. Um, science has moved on an incredible amount. Mm. And I think now the HSE and the, the, the state, the HSE need to catch up with that and the state needs to invest in that. Yeah, uh, as you say, there is some investment. Uh, there's 2.7 million euro, uh, I think you said, uh, for implementing the current strategy, uh, which is limited to leaving people waiting uh, for a year, up to two years to be tested. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm sure you'd like to see that increase, but it's not just the testing of uh, the gene. It's coming to making the next decision and what you do next, uh, whether that's a mastectomy in this case or, or whatever. Uh, and uh, it's horrifying to think of people being in that situation to find out that you're at this great risk. And genetic counselling is a big part of this as well, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And the entire holistic, um, you know, the holistic area of this, we have to look at, you know, yes, there is the medical, but there is also the psychological and the support and making sure there is someone there to talk to, to talk through all the risks of surgery because it is, it is, it is, a serious surgery to have a mastectomy and you, nobody takes this lightly so it's to make sure that people are walked through this process supported through the process um, and if they decide to do it you, you know you, mm. if, if you're positive for BRCA gene you're not made to do have a mastectomy 
it's all on the individual. It's all on what they want to do, but it needs to be supported through that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the National Cancer Control Program is undertaking you know active data collection um, in locations where the preventative surgeries are being taken place. This review will absolutely focus on the activity and look at what available sources are available now and what are available resources that are needed um, to be able to fulfil um, and, and to deal with the capacity um, issues that are already there. So, Michael, there is a lot of work mm-hmm. done. My my whole aim of the of the of the debate yesterday was was raise awareness, but also continue that positive pressure on the department on the HSE to make sure that you know this is this highlighted and move forward in the budget next week. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning. That's Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreen. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by AirGrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it where they need it well, RTE is in trouble, uh, not just uh, its credibility problem, but it is in dire straits financially. The Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, told the Oireachtas Committee on Media yesterday she reckons they'll need between 50 and 60 million euro of a, a bailout. They're to get 16 million for the moment uh, and the rest of it will be looked at in time. Let's speak to a member of uh, that committee, Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles who's on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you Shane Castles, thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. 16 million, what's that going to be spent on? Uh, good morning Michael, yes the <coughs> the Minister and for Media, Catherine Martin was before us yesterday this is the first time in all of this saga that she's actually come out and, uh, and sat before us uh, so it was an interesting exchange of views between her and the, and the members of the committee. She talked about what was required in terms of funding. Um, she obviously has been given a figure by what is called this New Era report on what is what is uh, it is imagined would be needed uh, for funding for RTE. As you said, it's some for probably in the region of fifty to sixty million, but that that figure hasn't been uh, disclosed. Uh, but what she has said is that the future of the media commission has said that just in terms of interim funding, uh, that it will be somewhere between 15 and 16 million. Now that's not taking into consideration any of the losses that RT are currently hemorrhaging uh, because of the lack of renewals of TV license. That is just in terms of general shortfall in funding what the future of the media commission think in terms of uh, production of programming mm. uh, running costs so forth so it's not in terms of the losses that they're hemorrhaging currently and that's about uh, 21 million isn't it just from the license fee alone well that's it, it could even be north of that really now at this mm. stage michael it's, it's, it's increasing nearly every week so i mean mm. um the issues there but i think i mean and i was very strong uh, to the minister on this point yesterday and, and she was equally strong in front of to her we had a situation where the Director General, Kevin Backhurst, was in before us only a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to you about that. And I had asked him specifically on the day that this new radical plan that he is devising uh, for RTE in terms of the reforms for us, he said that he would have the framework for us in October. I asked him specifically, would he have it before Budget Day? I'm sorry, pointed in that. He said he would. It's now come out yesterday that he won't. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's acceptable. Uh, I think RT are going to have their hands out next week, uh, come, come budget day, looking for, for funding. And I think the public uh, and the members of the Oireachtas are entitled to know uh, the outline of this radical reform that is being planned. Um, 
and I put that to the Minister, yep. uh, and she said that there would not be a situation whereby additional funding would be given until those plans are um, delivered to Cabinet, and also that they're actually delivered in full. So it's not a case of just sketching out something and saying, this is what we hope to do, because in reality, they're not going to have the totality of that plan ready until around Christmas time. Yeah, and a lot of these problems, of course, emanate uh, from uh, the payment scandal to Ryan Tuberty. But before that, RTE were looking for 34.5 million euro. That's before their troubles began. Uh, the license fee now on top of that, at least 21 million, and that'll keep getting worse. Uh, and uh, then you have this situation now uh, where we don't have this report from RCA in advance of the budget, uh, which would say where they're going to make the cuts. Uh, you spoke to the Minister about her thoughts on that. Uh, she didn't have too much to say to you, did she, other than there shouldn't be compulsory redundancies? Yes, because, I mean, there's other aspects of this as well in terms of um, the possible closure of regional stations, the impact on programming, um, you know, so there's a whole range of, of areas that, uh, you know, and I think there's a bit of, to use the phrase, and maybe uh, a bad choice of words, bartering going on here, uh, because RT on one stage are coming with their hand out saying we want more money, and if you don't give it to us, we're going to cut services and we're going to cut staff and we're going to cut programming, we're going to cut sports broadcasting. And I just think, and I, I got angry yesterday about it because I just thought, you know what, guys, you're running a business. And sometimes you're running a business very, very poorly. Mm. They do a huge amount of things right. A huge, I have great respect for our mm. national broadcaster, but they have done a huge amount of things wrong as well. And in particular, I point out the fact that they had a commercial operation in the form of title, the musical, that had a loss of, of, of over two and a half million. And when we questioned them about this earlier in the year before the scandals, uh, they came in and they just said, well, you know what, you guys wanted promoting the arts, we were promoting the arts, uh, and that's just it. And there was a kind of blasé attitude to losing three million. The days of blasé attitudes to just losing three million are over. And mm. you cannot have a situation where you come into an Iraqi committee say, yeah, we lost it, but you're lucky, we were trying our best. And then every Christmas come back looking for more money. Yeah. That's not acceptable. There was a uh, kind of a, a snide remark made, uh, I don't know how you interpreted it, uh, but it, it did seem to be very pointed at the political parties not uh, to vote for Christmas uh, because uh, you're turkeys type of thing when he, he said that if there's going to be cuts, if we don't get the money we need, uh, RTE won't be able to cover some of uh, the political events like the think-ins or the Ordashina. Yeah, like I mean, that was that was a, that was a dig. Now, and I don't, I'm not too sure the general public will be too perturbed if if they don't. But what I think the general public would be perturbed in is in terms of the reduction then in outside broadcasting mm. units that would have an impact on sports events, on cultural events, on things that people do care passionately about. And um, my point being is that, and I've made this point again yesterday. RTE have a commercial division. They are able to make money outside of just asking the taxpayer for it. Their commercial division is actually performing actually relatively well this year. They're ahead of schedule. They're bringing in extra income because of large-scale events such as the Rugby World Cup where advertisers are playing premiums uh, above and beyond the rate card. So they are able to make money. At one time, RTE was taking over 70% of their income from the commercial arm, and only 30% was coming through the tax, uh, through the, the licence fee. That has now diminished well under 50%. Mm. My point being is that they have a commercial arm. 
we should be engaging them and the Minister should be engaging them and the Minister for Finance should be engaging them on how what are they doing to actually bump that figure up. Coming back in, saying to us, it's not going well, lads, is in my mind not an adequate answer. In any other business, in any other media performer, whether it be in print media, radio media, TV media with Virgin, they would have to go out and either uh, make cuts or bump, bump up their income. Actually, and I, I think it's a kind of a, com- a, a comfort blanket there where you have a scenario where they can come in and just basically threaten and say, look, if you, if you, if you don't give us the money, we'll collapse. Yeah, I was watching uh, Virgin Media uh, last night. Mm. Kira Maloney, uh, former RTE correspondent on it, saying uh, he doesn't believe public money should be spent on light entertainment. And I, I thought it was an interesting point. Uh, we had a text earlier in the week from Brendan, who was very disparaging of Patrick Keelty in his role as the new Late Late Show presenter. I haven't seen it. I'd been away. Might see it this week. Might not. But what I did notice since that comment came in from Brendan is that uh, obviously there was huge viewership uh, on the first week. Uh, undoubtedly, all of this stuff fed into it. Uh, but since then, it's been hemorrhaging viewers. Yeah, I mean, look, it's probably returning to a, a level normal to what it, it would be taken in anyway. I mean, in, in Irish viewership but do, figures... But why do we spend so much people, money on it, if that's the case? No, but I mean, look, I, I, I have seen those those headlines as well in the papers, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't I wouldn't pay. I mean, a lot. Of, I would have tuned in for the first night because I was interested yeah. in seeing the first night. But I wouldn't be a regular watcher every week. What I what I do think is important is that in terms of the money that that show is maybe bringing in a commercial side, that needs to be replicated across other spheres. They're saying to us that that's happening this year. They're having a good year, but that this kind of hit and miss attitude is simply not good enough. And if you have a situation where you're coming in just looking for the Iraqis and for the taxpayer for more money. I don't believe that is an adequate uh, answer to give us, primarily because when they lose money, they have a blasé attitude to it. I do think that attitude is changing, but it's changing damnably slow, and it's infuriating. And I don't think a minister, and in fairness to her yesterday, she says, no, I'm not going to have a situation where I'm going to bail them out unless they have a very detailed plan. And that plan shouldn't be a scenario where it cuts to regional coverage of the country. Um, it, it, it needs to be at a governance stage. I raised the point yesterday as well from a lady who contacted me who was an RT pensioner. She lives in the northeast uh, area and uh, she contacted me and she made the point that the, the, the measly increase, which is only the second increase in, in 15 years that the pensioners were getting, which was granted last December, hasn't been granted. And yet the top execs were, were reinstoring, uh, restoring pay of 10% in the case of D Forbes. €10,000 in one payment. Mm. That would be nearly 80% of this woman's pension, and yet this was happening, and yet the payments in terms of the RT pensioners was not. What about D Forbes? This is the former Director General of RTE who's been sick uh, and unable to appear in front of your committee or the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, what did the Minister have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was a brief exchange towards the end about that. I know one of uh, Deputy Brendan Griffin, who's actually a former junior minister in that, in that department, uh, made that point that she shouldn't have been dismissed um, prior to bringing her and compelling her to come before the committee and discuss that. I think the minister made the point, look, it's not a case of whether she was dismissed or not. The case of her health is not preventing her, is preventing her from attending at the moment. That um, request for her to attend still stands and both the committee and indeed the cabinet uh, have reiterated that point, is that when we have a situation where she is well, that she she could come before, because we also saw yesterday the minister announced that she's increased the terms of reference uh, for the investigating committees, 
um, she had a scenario where she was only examining the last five years of the transactions on this infamous Barfer account, which was used to funnel the payments to Ryan Tuberty, uh, is now come out from yesterday that she's expanded the terms of reference. That's going to go all the way back to 2012, when this Barfer account was established, and examining all of the transactions uh, during that period. That in itself might uh, throw up a whole load of other issues uh, and incidents that occurred uh, maybe the decade before that. Mm. Uh, what about the future? Uh, because RTE, as you say, is dual funded. Uh, it gets TV license fee monies uh, as well as uh, the commercial money from its advertising. Are we going to continue to need a television license? Well, I think that's the big debate at the moment. That the, the Taoiseach, the Taunus, have all said that there is going to be an announcement on this. Uh, and you're looking towards the creation of a media fund. But that media fund would not be in the old guise, uh, from what I understand, of where primarily the money is given to RTE, but it would be something that would be accessed by all media. We, ha- we had the launch of the Press Council report uh, yesterday morning, uh, Michael, and we had a huge debate in terms of you know the future of print media, the, the future of all what we would consider traditional media. There's a, ho- there's a whole load more at stake here uh, than just um, the, you know, the, the future of RTE. Um, I remember walking in uh, when I joined the Drawhound Independent Company over 20 years ago and walking into a bustling newsroom on Shop Street in the town there. Uh, that office is long gone. That paper, unfortunately, is a shadow of its former self. And, you know, a, an institution in the town of Drawhound, not just the town of Drawhound, it was sold in the town of Navan as well. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have a situation where great institutions like that are eradicated from the landscape because if they go, they're gone forever. And then the coverage of things that matter at local council level, at local sport level, are gone. Now, there is an issue here as well for the general public as to whether they value that and whether they go, go out every week and spend their three euro buying the draw independent, or in my case, the Meat Chronicle. And if people stop doing that, well, then those products are actually going to disappear from the landscape. I hope that doesn't happen. I'm very proud of things like the Meat Chronicle in, in, in my county, that we still have that covering um, sport, covering local news, covering the councils. We, we had a situation where we discussed with a former um, exec from, from RTE who made the point to us that the Grenville Tower situation in London, the, the, the terrible fire that claimed so many lives, was actually discussed at a, at a council meeting. The, the poor cladding that was installed in that building, that decision was discussed at a local council meeting in that borough uh, in London. Yes, it was never covered because the local paper had gone out of existence in that area. So that decision at local council level was never highlighted at the time because they didn't have local media. There's a big issue here. It's not just in terms of uh, government taking it seriously. It's the public in general. I would encourage people, please support local media, support LMS and support the Chronicle Drawn Independent because if you don't, we're going to lose part of our democracy as well. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks, though, for joining us. Uh, I think we'll be hearing uh, more about RTE's woes in the coming weeks. Uh, but thanks, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, who's a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future. Jack, thanks for your text. He says, Michael, this situation with RTE is a joke. Politicians showboating to get answers. Ryan Tuberty has been made the scapegoat, but when the captain of the ship or D Forbes, as he says, refuses to answer questions. Uh, it's a different matter. She's the only one that needed to answer questions to begin with, says Jack. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that, Jack. Interesting thought. Our telephone number is 0419832000 if you want to make comment on the programme today. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as we've been hearing, indeed, as we've been discussing this morning, there's been great news for Ireland, or at least it's, it's almost certain Euro 28 will be held uh, here and in the UK as the final bidders. This is how the Taoiseach reacted to it yesterday. Uh, we learned today that Turkey has withdrawn its bid. Uh, that means we anticipate that um, next week, in fact on Budget Day, uh, UEFA will formally announce that UK and Ireland will host the 2028 tournament. I think that's going to be great for football. I think it's going to be great for the country. I think it's a good thing for UK-Ireland relations and something I will discuss uh, with the Prime Minister uh, when we meet um, in Granada tomorrow. Um, the two stadiums that we need uh, are Aviva, which is pretty much built already. It won't require a huge amount of additional work. And the other one we need, which I think is really crucial, is Caseman Park in Belfast. Uh, and we're in discussions with the Ulster GA Council and also the British government as to how we can make a contribution to the cost of building that new stadium. Uh, and I believe we should. All right. The Taoiseach believes we should. The DUP isn't too sure. Interesting uh, to hear the different opinions given where Caseman Park is located. We'll stay with the Taoiseach and indeed uh, with Dáil Éireann. Uh, we spoke to Padre Tobin on the programme yesterday about some of uh, the problems problems with Angarda Shia Khanna uh, and we'll hear some of what Padre Tobin had to say to us yesterday when he spoke to the doll after that interview uh, and here's what he had to say to the Taoiseach. In, in my own county for example of Mead there is a, a stretch from Enfields to Oldcastle uh, to Nobber uh, on which on a Saturday night there's simply only six Garda available there. The nearest backup Garda is 40 minutes away from them and that leaves those Garda uh, incredibly exposed in terms of them dealing with the difficulties uh, that they have. Um, I, I, I honestly believe that the, the government needs to very clearly state that those who purposefully injure a Garda will see uh, time in jail, a custodial sentence. There has to be a minimum sentence for those who actually attack or physically harm a Garda. And that we need to make sure the Garda know that the terms, conditions and pay that Garda have will increase to make the job attractive so that young men and women will take up posts in that. Until those two things are done, you, we are going Dave. to see this crisis continue throughout communities in this country. Right, that's uh, Patricio Bain talking about some of uh, the problems uh, that we're aware of in Angarda Shiakana and indeed with policing in the country. That has led to a lot of pressure on the Minister, Helen McEntee. Let's hear some of uh, the response from Taoiseach Leo Vratker and indeed his very, very strong defence of Minister McEntee. Yeah, I agree with you about Garda safety and it's really important uh, that our Garda, and not just our Garda, uh, everyone feels safe uh, at work. Um, and that extends to all of our uniformed services, extends to teachers, nurses, people working in our health service too, who often uh, face, uh, face the risk of violence, but particularly the case when it comes to our Garda. And that's why Minister McEntee has led the charge uh, on providing body-worn cameras for Garda. 
and that's really important for their protection um, and also uh, is, is, is making sure that there's improvements uh, in the uh, equipment that they have. Um, but Deputy, I'm not sure what you really mean by the culture wars, but if anyone's distracted by them, Deputy, it's probably you, uh, not, Minister, not Minister McEntee. I, I know Minister McEntee. I, I know Minister McEntee uh, from the time she was working in this building uh, as a PA to her father. I know Minister McEntee. I know what her number one priority has been as Minister and is cracking down on domestic and gender-based violence. And you just look at the murder and manslaughter statistics for this year. It's not, thankfully, gangland crimes this year. It's women being killed by men they know. And the worse. fact that she has made that a priority shows how serious she is uh, about the serious crime of gender and domestic-based violence. Thank you, As I say, that's uh, the Taoiseach standing over his minister, Helen McEntee. Uh, and uh, I think we can hear uh, a little bit uh, about policing from the minister directly now. This is Helen McEntee. I think nobody knows better than the local community what needs to be done to improve community safety, whether it's Navan, whether it's Galway, whether it's any of the towns or villages that we represent. Community safety partnerships are the way in which we will respond to that. They acknowledge that increasing community safety is not just the responsibility of Vangardish and I think we all acknowledge that too much has fallen on their shoulders for many, many years now. It requires many state agencies, organisations, elected representatives to come together. So whether it's TUSLA, whether it's local businesses, education providers, enterprise workers, youth services, working together and working with local community and elected representatives, bringing everyone around the table, identifying what the issues are within each county, within each community and drawing up individual plans. From next year, every area will have a community safety partnership uh, to draw up their own community safety plan. The Minister for Justice and Local TD, Helen McEntee. Let's uh, hear from uh, another local TD now on a completely separate issue and the issue of housing adaptation grants and indeed some fairly strong criticism of Louth County Council from Fine Gael's Fergus O'Dowd. So it's not a good system because it's not working well. There are 3,500 known applicants who are waiting for the County Council uh, to give them the money to go ahead. Part of the problem is County Councils have to provide 20% of the funding itself. I think, Minister, you have on your desk a report which was promised by the end of 2022. I got a reply in June that it will be published imminently. It remains hidden like the third secret of Fatima. So what the hell is going on in your department, Minister? Why isn't the money being spent? You have a golden opportunity now to address an appalling wrong. Looking at the television recently, seeing a male, a middle-aged or elderly man going up the stairs with a disability, barely able to actually move, breathless and harassed by the lack of accommodation downstairs for him. Replicate that 3,500 times. And in my own county, which is a shocking figure, there are 562 applicants which are on a waiting list. But wait for it, Loud County Council in his wisdom decided some months ago that anybody else who applies can please take your application back and apply in January the 1st. I have met many of them, and that is entirely and absolutely unacceptable. Your report, Minister, should identify how the system must change. Your report must insist on equality of treatment regardless of where you live and what county you're in and whether you're on the waiting list or not. If you fall into the category 
one and two, priority one and two and three, you should get your grant, and that's the beginning and the end of it. A minister. There you go. That's Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegale TD, for Louth. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about those adaptation grants, uh, and indeed from Fergus O'Dowd, who's looking to see an increase in what is being allocated to local authorities in next week's budget. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. As you've been hearing on LMFM's news this morning, me, the Matic Limited, uh, the developer behind uh, the Ringford estate in Rathmoylan has been placed in receivership. It's devastating news uh, for people who had hoped to move into the 16 houses uh, that are all but complete in Rathmoylan, in the Ringford uh, estate uh, last year, uh, but now are looking at their deposits uh, and what will happen with them and what is essentially an unfinished estate. Johnny Gurk, Sinn Féin TD from Mead West is on the line. Good morning, Johnny. Thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what's your understanding of uh, the situation that those house buyers are in this morning? Are their deposits gone or is there any hope for them? Yeah, um, Michael, uh, I was very disappointed that the people who bought those houses um, read it in the media yesterday. They weren't even told about this coming up. But uh, as soon as I heard it, um, I got in touch with the receivers and I spoke to uh, Ken Fennell and um, I'm going to call him. I have to call him back uh, next Monday morning when he gets a chance to look at it. And um, myself and the, the homeowners are going to meet him uh, next week and um, go through this, you know, and I'll be um, doing my best that uh, if we can get the receiver to honour the contracts that these people signed. Okay. Um, it's a company called Spud Muckers, uh, an investment company in County Wexford uh, that has appointed uh, the receivers. They're owed four and a half million euro, I think. Yeah, four and a half million euro. But um, what I'm led to believe is if all those houses were sold at the prices agreed, it would bring in four and a half million. You know, so um, there's no reason why these contracts... Um, can't be honoured, you know. I, in today's Irish Times, I see uh, where somebody um, purchased a house and uh, they signed a contract and the, the people who bought the house pulled out and they lost their deposit and they were taken to court because they didn't honour the contract and they had to pay the difference of um, what that house made when it went to um, when it went for sale, you know. So um, these contracts uh, have to mean something, you know. And the other thing, uh, I think, uh, that the government have a part to play here because um, some of those houses were bought under the Help to Buy scheme and they were financed under um, the Home Building Finance Ireland scheme, which is a government scheme as well, you know. So um, I, I brought it up last week with the Tarnished Michael Martin, he, um, you know, the homeowners themselves wrote to him, they wrote to the Taoiseach, they wrote to uh, the Minister for Housing, and have heard nothing back from any of them. But he said that he would um, uh, talk to uh, Minister Dara O'Brien about this and um, get back to us, you know, but as of now, we've heard nothing. Okay. Uh, Michael Elias uh, is a director and shareholder of both Spudmakers and Meadmatic. Meadmatic owes Spudmakers four and a half million euro, uh, and Spudmakers have put Meadmatic into receivership. It's a curious tale, is it not? 
It is. Uh, you know, there seems to be several companies involved there, and you, you, to be honest, you wouldn't know where where you stand with it. You know, but um, all we can do is be first in with the receivers and put the case of the people who bought those houses um, to them. And you're dealing with some very determined people who have waited three years, and um, you know they're, they're not going to give up easy on these houses. You know, they, they, um, they, their lives are put in hold, their houses are put in hold. As you see, some people have put down um, thirty thousand. Uh, others have bought furniture. You know, others have made changes to the house at a cost of twenty-five thousand. You know, so it's not easy for a lot of these people to walk away from those houses. And in my opinion, they shouldn't have to walk away from those houses. They signed um, contracts, a legally binding agreement, and uh, you know, as long as we can, we'll be trying to hold them to that. Mm. Well, the houses are all but finished, aren't they? Oh, they are. Like I mean, uh, there there's very little to be done. A bit of groundwork's outside. Um, you know, um, in some cases, um, they're just ready for snagging uh, some of the houses. Uh, you know, so they, it could be finished uh, definitely. If 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 somebody went in there, it could definitely be finished within one month. I've spoken to Mead County Council. Um, any issues that's uh, holding up uh, road opening license or anything, they will turn that around in, within a couple of hours. You know, so. But what we what we've got from the contractors is you, you can go back. Um, months, like I've been involved in this for nearly six months, um, they blame the pandemic, they blame the uh, you know the water issues, they blame the council, they blame something all the time for delays. While at the whole time it looked like that they were um, prepared to go into receivership, you know. <coughs> mm. uh, and uh, to avoid that, or was it to avoid that that they came looking for an extra sixty thousand euro per house from purchases? Well, I don't know. But I know one thing, um, how could anybody that um, had an agreement to purchase those houses um, come along and give that same uh, contractor any, any more money for anything? If you couldn't trust them with the contracts you signed, how could you trust them to uh, make another deal? And, and again, yeah. I don't believe um, that they should have to make another deal. You know? Well, where would you get the 60000 from? I, I, I would imagine um, uh, your lender would say, well, you've an agreed price. Why are you looking for an extra 60000 but that's the thing, um, Michael. They, they probably, in most cases, the people wouldn't be able to get the additional money. They, they went in to, to the banks or whatever lenders they were dealing with, and they have um, got the mortgages for the price of the house, whether it was two hundred seventy-five thousand or whatever, and, and that's what uh, the money that they were agreed. That's the money that they were approved for. So, yeah, exactly. How would they get additional money? You know, maybe it was another way of of the developer getting the people to pull out of the houses. You know, and 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 um, you know, just throw throw them up. Which, which the people uh, don't want to do or are not willing to do. Okay, uh, in terms of how the receivers look at, at this, uh, which is four and a half million euro, um, they're going to prioritise the creditors, aren't they? And I, I take it that the house purchasers will be at the bottom of the list. Well, I don't know. Like um, we, uh, the, the home buyers have a solicitor as well who will be looking um, at uh, the ins and outs of the contract they signed and see, you know, what that covers them for. Or you know, so I know I don't know an awful lot about how the receivership works, but mm. uh, that 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 would be, um, you know, they would be trying to, um, you know, get as much money in as they can to pay pay um, people that are owed money. You know, so but uh, in this case, um, first priority should be the people who sign contracts and, and bought those houses. Okay, but uh, as you say, uh, they're practically finished. Uh, some of them really just need snags uh, to be sorted out uh, and that sort of thing. You'd imagine that these houses are going to be sold and people will move in uh, and if it's 
the people, if it's not the people who have already put their deposits on and essentially bought the houses, that's going to be a very, very bitter pill. Can you envisage such a horrible situation? Well, I don't want to um, to 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 see it uh, turning out that way. I, that's why I want to put as much pressure on um, every the, the receiver and everybody involved here that um, that the people who signed the contracts get the first option of those houses. You know, uh, that's why I want to try and get um, Dara Bryan involved if I can, as it, uh, some of those houses were purchased with the help to buy, you know, and, and financed by Home Building Finance Ireland. You know, uh, the, the development was financed by Home Building Finance Ireland. You know, so these are two government um, bodies. So I'm hoping that they will be able to uh, have a say in this, you know, and, and, and put a bit of pressure on um, the receiver, you know, that they can deal with the pe- people who bought the houses. Um, but, but you said people read about this in the media yesterday. Um, I take it that they're just floored by it, are they? Oh, look, I mean, I seen there, I was reading the Irish Independent this morning, there was two pages in it mm-hmm. about the development, you know, and, and just uh, reading um, one after another, like, people are sick, you know, they, 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 they have, um, they're living with their parents, you know, trying to save a few bob before they move into the houses, you know, they, they have given notice um, to, to landlords that they're quitting where they were, you know, and um, it's, 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 it's a very, very bad situation for them, you know, and um, they definitely need all the help they can get, you know, and it's up to us as public representatives to do what we can for them, you know. Absolutely. Well, uh, hopefully there'll be some sort of of resolution which will make them realise their dreams. Uh, As one of uh, the people told the Irish Independent today, we thought we were going to move into the house by Christmas and we told our kids about the new home. We used to drive by the site and say, look, there's our new home. Uh, and they've stopped driving by since uh, because they say it's just too upsetting. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like at the moment, not knowing what the outcome of all of this is going to be. It's a dreadful situation for people to find themselves in, and after so long expecting to move in uh, last year, as the case may be. Johnny, thanks for coming back to us on it, though, and uh, as I say, hopefully there'll be some resolution and uh, development in that story in the coming days. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Mead West, Johnny Gurk, who brings our programme to its conclusion. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Reid. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. Listen back to the Michael Reid Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reid Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.